them through Moses as he begins to transition toward their responsibility. We'll get into that even more strongly at the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5. But he says you need to listen to these things that I'm teaching you to perform. Remember that God gave the law not for theoretical speculation, but for practical instruction. They were supposed to obey this. This was not something for the museum, this was something for their life. And that was essential so they could live and go in and possess the land. That was the ultimate objective. This law would give them the ability to go in and occupy the territory God promised their forefathers. He said in verse 2 not to add or take from this. No additional rules are needed and no rules that he gives are unnecessary. If you add to it, you weaken it. If you subtract it from it, you diminish it. You are are to take only what he says and all of what he says. Not just what suits your taste, but take it exactly as he says it. That concept of doing exactly what God says. Taking exactly as he says it without any change or modification whatsoever is a very important attitude. It's a respectful attitude. It's an obedient, submissive attitude. And it's essential for us in our relationship with God. This is a life and death matter. He said, see what happened to the men at Baal Peor, how God destroyed them. You're alive because you didn't do it. So this is a life and death matter. This this idea of obeying God's commands and holding fast to what he says. And then he says, you don't realize what a great blessing it is to have a God like me and a law like this. He says, keep these laws And this will be your wisdom and your understanding, verse 6, in the sight of the people who will hear all these statutes and will say, wow, this is such a wise and understanding people. 
What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the, is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? The greatness of Israel was not in their wealth or military power. It was not in their cultural achievements or anything like that. They had tremendous blessing and greatness and status because they had God and they had His law. What a motivation for Israel to live by God's law. They would be a blessing to the other nations as they were the people that had the closeness to God, as they were the people that had His message, His revelation. You know, this is a special privilege. You could look at the law, as some people do, as a burden that God imposes upon them. But he says, actually, this law is a great blessing not any other nation has such closeness to me. I didn't reveal myself as thoroughly to any other nation as I have to you in giving you this law. What a blessing. This will make you the envy of the other nations. They wish they had a God that close to them. They wish they had a revelation from God so great as this revelation is. We do not appreciate, like we ought to, I think, the blessing of being so close to God and of knowing His will. It is amazing that we can just pick this book up. And we've got it in every form imaginable. We've got it in an electronic form in various versions with a click of a button. And we know what God has spoken to us. He has cared enough about us to speak to us. And He's caused it to be written down to where we can study it and learn it and meditate on it and lay it up in our heart, do we realize what a privilege that is? That's what Moses is saying to these people. You don't know what you've got. You have something that other nations will be envious of. There is an ancient Sumerian prayer preserved in Ashurbanipal's 7th century library in Nineveh. I want you to listen to some of this. I may read all of it. This is crazy. But think about the nations that didn't know God. What do you do when disaster strikes and you have no connection with God? This is entitled, Prayer to Any God. May my Lord's angry heart be reconciled. May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the goddess I do not know be reconciled. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. May the goddess, whoever she is, be reconciled. May my, may my God's heart be reconciled. May my goddess's heart be reconciled. May God and my goddess be reconciled with me. May the God who has turned away from me in anger be reconciled. May the goddess who has turned away from me in anger be reconciled. I do not know what wrong I have done. I could not eat for myself bread I found. I could not drink for myself the water I found. I have perpetrated unwittingly an abomination to my God. I have unwittingly violated a taboo of my goddess. O Lord, many are my wrongs, great are my sins. O my God, many are my wrongs, great my sins. O my goddess, many are my wrongs, great my sins. O God, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. O goddess, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. I do not know what wrong I have done. I do not know what sin I have committed. I do not know what abomination I have perpetrated. I do not know what taboo I have violated. A Lord has glowered at me in the anger of his heart. A God has made me face the fury of his heart. A goddess has become enraged at me and turned me into a sick man. A God, whoever he is, has excoriated me. A goddess, whoever she is, has laid misery upon me. When I wept, they would not draw near. 
When I would make a complaint, no one would listen. I am miserable, blindfolded, I cannot see. Turn toward me, merciful God, as I implore you. I do homage to you, my goddess, as I keep groveling before you. O God, whoever you are, turn toward me, I implore you. O goddess, whoever you are, turn toward me, I implore you. O Lord, turn toward me, I implore you. O goddess, look upon me, I implore you. And so forth and so on. Well, what else do you have? If you don't know God, and He hasn't communicated with you, what do you do when disaster strikes? You don't know who it is that's doing it. You don't know what they're doing, and you don't know why, and you don't know what to do about it. What a terrible situation to face. When you don't know what God has been offended, what the offense was, and what it'll take to satisfy the God, the goddess, whoever it might be. That illustrates, I think, for us how important it is for us to know the Lord. What a great treasure we have in this close relationship with God and His revealing to us His wonderful message. Can you imagine being an ancient Sumerian? Thoughts and comments? Yes. In verse 8, we read about um, Israel having uh, important statutes and righteous judgments and laws. They live under, you know, you know, laws that God has specifically given them. And yet, you know, as we're going to read on, as what we've already read uh, prior and after Deuteronomy, is that over and over again his children failed him. And that's important to realize because, you know, laws alone, we need to realize this, you know, with our politicians today, laws alone can't stop a person from sinning if their heart is not right. Sure, yeah. God revealed his law, now what are we going to do with it? Yes, exactly. Other thoughts? Okay. Uh, 9 to 14. When we take heed to yourself... (laughs) Go ahead. What do we do with this law? He says, don't forget these things and tell them to your sons and your grandsons. Parents, even at this point in Israel's history, were responsible for the spiritual education of their children. They need to pass these things along to the next generations, as also we do. The great lesson for us. Such a great blessing to know the Lord. We want our children and grandchildren to know it. And that doesn't happen if we don't purposely teach them. And then he emphasizes the importance of fearing the Lord in verse 10. That is a dominating thought of the Bible. We need that respect and reverence for God. That's a problem for us. 
sometimes we just don't think of the Lord as being as great and holy as what He is, and therefore we don't live with the kind of fear for Him and respect for Him we ought to have. He makes the point that they experienced God, though they did not see Him. They heard Him and obeyed Him. He'll make a point later about the fact God did not reveal Himself in some visual form to them. In verse 13, He declared to you His covenant. That's an interesting verb to use. He didn't negotiate a covenant with them. He didn't work out some sort of compromise treaty with them. He declared the covenant. It's kind of a take it or leave it matter. God is the one who sets the terms. And that covenant involved essentially the Ten Commandments. I don't know for sure, but I wonder if having ten might correspond to the digits on our hands and facilitate even memorization. You've got a commandment for every finger and thumb. He said that you were to write them on two tablets of stone. People have questioned why two tablets, and people have done all sorts of things with that. I think the idea actually is in a covenant, both parties gets a copy. Both parties get a copy. And so there was a copy for the people, there was a copy for the Lord. Of course, where do you put the Lord's copy? Well, in his house, in his the Holy of Holies. Where do you put the people's copy? They would normally, even in a treaty with another nation, put their copy in their temple. So really, both copies went to the temple. But I think that's probably the idea of this. And so, this is the covenant. And uh, he's, he's kind of setting this up. He's talking about uh, the event, the situation here at uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, and, and as we get down into chapter 5, we're actually going to see those Ten Commandments which were the basis of that covenant with God. Thoughts and comments? 15 to 24. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you, and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord is angry with me for your sakes, and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan, and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan. But you shall cross over and possess that good land. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. It's important that they reflect upon the nature of the God that revealed himself on Mount Sinai. They heard him, they didn't see him. Therefore, images are inappropriate in worshiping this God. He did not choose to represent himself in some visible form. I suspect there's a reason for that. Perhaps to have tried to express himself visually would have been to limit him in some way. Uh, perhaps there is some other reason. 
But it's interesting that in this, maybe the greatest and most moving of all the encounters of the Israelites with the Lord, they did not see Him visually. He spoke, but they couldn't see Him. So He says, don't make some image to represent Me. That seems to be a very fundamental part of the covenant and the one they keep breaking over and over again. He says, don't make an image like a man, like an animal, like a bird, like a fish, like the heavenly bodies. Kind of interesting. How did God create when He filled those realms? The heavenly bodies, the birds and the fish, the animals and man. He kind of goes back through that in reverse order. And he said, just don't do it. You're not allowed to make any visual representation of God that you bow down to. I think that's something to keep in mind with some religious bodies that do that very thing. They make a visual representation of God or of Jesus or whatever and venerate that in some way. That is contrary to the nature of God's revelation to us. Didn't want that to happen. And then he emphasizes, again, that he was not going to get to enter that land. You can tell he is keenly disappointed about that. Now, one lesson in that again. If Moses was judged like this, what about them if they rebel? You know, if it can happen to Moses, it can happen to you. I think that's an important lesson. But wow, so close. And yet, so far, you know, even forgiven sins leave scars. And, and you can see that in Moses. And then he turned back again to encourage them not to make any graven image, any form, not to have any rivals to God. His holiness will not tolerate that. They must be alleg- have their allegiance with God alone. He is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God who tolerates no rivals. Sometimes that might seem a little, I don't know, unreasonable on God's part. You know, is why, why would he have that jealousy where he wouldn't let you worship anybody else? But you can understand it clearly, I think, if you think about a marriage relationship and God describes his relationship with man often as a marriage covenant. What would you think of a man who told his wife, I don't really care what other men you want to be with. That's fine. Be with anybody you want to. Just come home when you like. Well, you would say a man like that didn't care about his wife, didn't love his wife, well, didn't value her. A God who said, worship any God you want to, you know, and just come to me whenever you like, would be a God who didn't value us, who didn't care about us, who didn't love us. It really shows God's special relationship with his people that he will not tolerate rivals. Thoughts and comments, Alex. Not to mention what they would have been worshiping are non-living things. They'd be kind of like us. You know, saying, well, my friendship to you is important, but it's just as important as my relationship to this ant or this plant or something or this rock. You know, it's kind of insulting for God to be put on the same level as something that he made. Yeah, that he made. Yeah, he made. That is so contrary to what the world teaches, though, isn't it? I mean, the world teaches that somebody who loves everybody will just do whatever they want, free will, just... 
love, peace, joy, right? And and that that jealousy is wrong, but but that is what God is, and it, and it's a good, healthy thing, like what you explained with a marriage relationship. It it leads to stability, it leads to security, and you know, a wife or a husband that has somebody who doesn't care about them is insecure. A person who doesn't have a God that cares about them is insecure. Amen. It is a blessing. God is like that, but that's not popular in our day, David. I really like, uh, we see that Moses is definitely upset about that he's not going to get in, but he doesn't just throw his hands up and say, well, since I can't go in, I'm done. He's still writing this book and he's still doing what he can. And I think that shows us that even when, when we ask for forgiveness and we still have to bear the consequences of our sins, we can still be useful and we can still be encouraging. Great point. Amen. Dan. Do you think one of the reasons why uh, God is, is really instructing his people not to make these images is because he's wanting to preserve the sacredness of who Jesus would be, that Jesus would be this image of the invisible God, that he in some ways, in a lesser way, would be a representation of who God is, and so nothing else would measure up the image of what he has already decided. That's an interesting thought. Certainly nothing else could. You have to be a personal person. Yes. Good point. Yes. Yeah. You know, the whole question of images and visual representations is a little tricky. Um, I'm impressed with the fact that uh, cherubim were woven into the uh, curtains of the temple uh, the tabernacle and so forth and so on I don't know that the point is that it's wrong to make visual representations of some heavenly things I think it's wrong to worship them it's wrong to make a visual representation of God uh, exactly where to go with some of that, I'm not sure. There's a lot of good questions in that area. <coughs> like we just said, the Sistine Chapel image of God creating Adam is a simple thing. I didn't, even, I didn't know they had that, but yeah, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know much about art. But I don't know. Uh, I don't know how we could make a visual representation of God. Seems to me like this would prohibit that. Yes. Right. Yeah. They needed to see who God was, not something he looked like. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and when you remember when uh, Moses asked to, to see God, and God passed by and saw his, uh, him from behind or whatever. The emphasis in Exodus 33 seems to be more on the idea he saw the nature of God, the character of God. Yes? What should our attitude be in regards to these like Christian bodies who do these things? Like? When groups do things that are wrong, we need to oppose them just as Moses opposed the, the Israelites. Uh, we need to teach people what's right and teach them what's wrong. Just what, what do you think he means when he's talking about 
um, in verse 20, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt. I think it was just a really uh, horrible slavery. It was like being in an iron furnace. They were oppressed so quickly. So God had blessed them in that way. They need to respect you. <coughs> okay. 25-31 When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him, if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation, and all these things are come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. In 26, God calls heaven and earth to be the witnesses of the covenant. The heavens and the earth are kind of uh, thought of as permanent, unchanging, and they would constantly be able to testify as to what God had said and what the men had done. He emphasizes that if they disobey, essentially God would reverse the covenant blessings. He would expel them from his land and he would make them few in number. The covenant blessings were that they would inherit the land and be multiplied. So he would reverse the covenant upon their disobedience. He would drive them to the nations where they could serve other gods as much as they liked. You know, if idolatry is what they wanted, very well, just not in his land. Go to the place where they worship idols and do that. That's basically what he's saying. But look at it. You will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. If the gods can't perform even basic bodily functions, what hope is there of them saving their followers? You know, it's like, wow, how, how foolish it is to worship a god that can't do anything. But even in exile, when they would seek the Lord, and search for him with all your heart and all your soul, God provides the potential for their being restored. He's willing to be merciful again. So you think about the contrast between 24 and 31. In rebellion and idolatry, they find the God of 24, the consuming fire, the jealous God. In repentance and return, they find the God of 31, the compassionate God who will not fail or destroy you. Thoughts and comments through 31. Yes, Tim. seems like in, in this passage, as well as some others in Deuteronomy, you didn't speak about the captivity and return as being contingent upon the behavior, but as historical fact that will transpire, which is interesting. 
yeah, but will transpire because they will be unfaithful. I think he says that often enough to get that idea. Okay. 32 to uh, 40. For ask now the days that have passed before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one angel of heaven to the other, for such, such a great thing, has this ever happened or was ever heard? Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand or an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you and me before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, that there is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is to this day. Know therefore today, and lay to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth and there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God will be in all time. We have stressed already the idea that Israel's experience was not in every way unique. But in this passage it is. And the idea is that if they go through the entire panorama of human history, their experience of God was greater than any other nation. They were blessed in ways that transcended the blessings that God had given to other nations. They can just do a cosmic research project. And, and they won't hear anything like this. You know, has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived? You know, has any God gone in and rescued a nation from an oppression like God rescued Israel from Egypt. Had God blessed other nations? Yes. Had He done anything equivalent to that? No, He really hadn't. What God had done for His people surpassed anything that had ever been heard of. I think about Psalm 147, 19. He declared His words to Jacob, His statutes and His ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them, praise the Lord. God had revealed himself, both in word and deed, in a special way to his people, that he had not revealed himself in other ways. God had invaded Egypt and snatched Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh and Egypt's gods and, and blessed them, redeemed them. You know, you think about how was it that Israel came to believe in only one God? Now, if you listen to the skeptics, this was a, a product of evolutionary religious thought over a period of time. They evolved this, this pure notion of one God. But really, it was because of what God did for them. This was based upon their historical experience. They knew God because of what God did. One of the things you see constantly in the Bible is that the, the truth claims of the Bible are based on concrete verifiable historical evidence. This is not some philosophy. This is not somebody's, you know, philosophical thinking. 
This is, this is what God has done in, in time and place reality for this nation, for this people. And it's a great blessing. He loved them. He loved their father. He was the greatest God that ever been. There was no other God like him anywhere. And they really needed to see that. They needed to develop that kind of conviction that they served the one and only God. You know, when you talk about qualities of God, you ever try, start trying to list, you know, what are some of the, the things about God? He's eternal, He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present, He's holy, and you just come up with all sorts of things. Well, I think one of the qualities we ought to add to that list, He's unique. There's no one else like Him. He is singularly God. And when anybody tries to put anybody else, any other being on a level with God, they fall so short they're not even in the same way. <coughs> that was what Moses is telling this people. As he wraps up their history, he wants them to understand the greatness of God, the blessing of God, the uniqueness of God. Comments and thoughts? Yes. Ah, good point. I hadn't thought about that. Good, good thought. Other thoughts? 41 to 43. Then Moses set apart three cities beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise, that the manslayer might flee thither. That slayeth his neighbor unawares, and hateth him not in time past. And that fleeing unto one of these cities he might live, namely Bezer, in the wilderness, in the plain country, for the Reubenites, and Ramoth, and Gilead, for the Gittites, and Golan, and Bashan, for the Manassites. Now you see what we're doing right here. That almost seems kind of jarring, you know, like why he's telling us this all of a sudden. But we we are really still in this historical review, kind of finishing that up right up to this present moment. So he's told about how God gave them the victory over Sihon and Og, and then how God allocated the, that territory among the two and a half tribes. Well, also before he leaves that topic and moves on to talking about the specific laws themselves, he wants to mention that in those two and a half tribes, in that land on the right-hand side of the Jordan River, God established three cities of refuge. We will later in Deuteronomy learn more about the cities of refuge. They were basically places of asylum for someone guilty of involuntary manslaughter. And he wanted them to be easily accessible to people in any part of the country. So God put three here on the east side of the Jordan. Later he will establish three on the west side of the Jordan. So people had access anywhere they were in the country to those cities of refuge. That's really what that's all about. Thoughts? Okay. Uh, 44 down to 5.5. Five. Now this is the law which Moses set before the sons of Israel. These are the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which Moses spoke to the sons of Israel. And they came out with Egypt. 
Across the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Buell, in the land of Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, whom Moses and the sons of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. They took possession of this land in the land of Og, king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who were across the Jordan to the east, from Aor, which is in the edge of the valley of Arnon, even as far as Mount Sion, that is Hermon, with all the with all the Arabah across the Jordan to the east, even as far as the Sea of Arabah, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I, I am speaking today in your hearing.